Thanks for pressing play. On this episode, we ask the question, how can we create legendary cultures? Culture and the future of work uh, has never been more important than it is right now. And many people are asking, how do we create legendary cultures in a digital slash hybrid work environment? Why is it not going back to the way it was? And what are the new skills to master in the new work world? Why culture building? Best practices have little value today. And the power of something called psychological safety and corny exercises and a whole lot more. Our guest today is New York Times bestselling author, Daniel Coyle. His book, The Culture Code, was named the best business book of the year a little while back by Bloomberg. And he's got a new book out called The Culture Playbook, 60 Highly Effective Actions to Help Your Group Succeed. He is the man on all things culture and pay special attention to Dan's thoughts on the difference between work transformation and work creation. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. We have been downloaded, thanks to you, millions of times in, in 190 countries. I can't even believe it when I say it. We've also had, on a side note, in the last three or four months, there's been roughly a doubling of the size of this podcast. And um, on behalf of all of us here, I just want to say to you, thank you. We have done nothing different. So we know that uh, we have doubled in a very short period of time because you have been sharing this oddcast with your friends, families, colleagues, and on social media. And we deeply, deeply appreciate it. Now, my friends at Airspeed are a startup that's currently in stealth mode that is helping to build a whole new paradigm in the digital work world. And it's, it's uh, backed by some of the greatest venture capitalists in Silicon Valley history and some very serious uh, serial entrepreneurs. So check out getairspeed.com and you'll begin your journey to cure digital disconnect and build the digital work environment of the future. That's getairspeed.com. And I want to invite you to join me for the first ever Cloud Wars Live Expo, June 28th through 30, 2022, in Moscone Center in beautiful downtown San Francisco. This is the most important thing to happen to the cloud since my buddy Bob Evans, the creator of Cloud Wars, started ranking the Cloud Wars top 10. The biggest cloud companies, the coolest cloud startups, over 40 hours of legendary cloud education. Check out cloudwarsexpo.com. That's cloudwarsexpo.com. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Dan, it sure is great to see you. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here with you. And uh, thank you for writing your new book. It's um, it's great to be having the conversation with the uh, category king of culture, uh, I think, at this moment in history. So thank you for your new book. Hey, we are living through a moment, aren't we? It's like, you know, it's, it's, when you start a project like this, you're never quite sure when it's going to land. Um, and 
here in this is everybody's trying to figure out how are we going, how are we going to do this? How are we going to be together now? How are we going to work together now? How are we going to sort of navigate uh, our group? Everybody's having that conversation now. So it's, it's, um, it's kind of a good, it is a moment and it's kind of fun to explore what's possible. Yeah. So I I can't wait to do that. So let me bounce a few things off you just to get reaction and sort of jump in. So uh, I'm sure you saw many of these same things. Um, CEO of Goldman Sachs comes out and says, everybody's got to come back to work on such and such a date. Uh, He is what we around here call a native analog. That is to say he grew up uh, in a world where um, he wasn't integrated with the machines and his primary experience is an analog experience, not a digital one. And so he says, everybody has to come back to work. And according to uh, multiple, multiple media outlets, only half of them do. And then here in Silicon Valley, we have this happening all over the place. Uh, I can't name the company, but a senior uh, person at a company that has a um, facility with about 3,000 people in it uh, reopened up, asked everybody to come back, didn't mandate it. And they're now averaging 45 people a day. Yes. And so um, what what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> right. What is going on is a transition. And it is totally fascinating to see us people self-organize in this new world. And there's basically two schools of thought about it. Right. The first school of thought is this was a rupture. Right. People things will never go back to the way they were. People discovered that they had lives outside of work and they just want some kind of easy transactional job and go home to their dog and their Netflix and their neighbors and their community. Um, and th- we are, we are across the divide. Uh, and the things we, we're always going to have that 45 people coming back out of 3000. That's the future. That's one school of thought. The glass is not, you know, is, is, is sort of fundamentally not even half empty, sort of broken in some fundamental way. Um, and then there's another school of thought which says, yeah, this is kind of part of a larger, longer journey. Um, there was a sort of zoom out where people realized, hey, life's a lot bigger than work and it's pretty cool to be at home and I, I like my dog. Um, and But at the same time, what we haven't yet redid, what we're sort of rediscovering now is like there's a special thing that happens at work in person, especially when it comes to career development and improving. And People are going to realize, and, and I've seen this uh, as some of the tech companies have come back, you know, two days a week, three days a week, um, that there is kind of a joy and a pleasure and a, a positivity and a productivity that comes out of being in the office. It's maybe not five days a week. Maybe it's three. Maybe it's two. Um, but it, this in this school of thought, the glass is closer to half full, that uh, we're going to go through this transition and we're going to realize that there are certain things that happen in the office that that are pretty indispensable. Um, certain types of creativity, certain types of apprenticeships. When it comes to developing your career and building skills, there's a certain uh, interactions that kind of can't happen through glass. Like you have to be there. You can't be in a screen. And as people kind of discover, and the gift I think of this of these last two years has been a certain amount of clarity around what work is for and where it fits into our lives. And I tend to fall into this second school of thought that says, yeah, this is office might be smaller. It might be fewer days a week. It it definitely will be more intentional. And what it's done to kind of culture and leadership is basically shown a light on a new skill set that we're going to need to navigate this, a new intentionality, a new level of reflection, a new ability to pause 
and think together about what's really the best way to do this that that preserves people's lives, that gets the work done, that allows for development, all of that. So we're kind of in this new era, which is why it's, it's really kind of why I ended up writing this this book because it's it's a playbook, and the idea is, hey, you know, here's some moves that that some actions that can work in this environment, um, in this new environment, as we're kind of building it together. Thank you for that. Now, the, if I look at the practicalities of it, certainly here in Silicon Valley, I hear things like, well, hey, I went back to work and um, there was hardly anybody there. Yep. And I sat in my cube on Zoom meetings and I did that for a few days and decided Yes, it was nice to say hello to the very few other people that happened to be around in the break room or whatever. <laughs> right, but right. if I'm going to sit here uh, on Zoom meetings in my in my fucking queue, then I could just stay home. And yeah. so th- you said something interesting that I want to maybe touch on uh, that said, which is, are people deciding to come physically together? Do, do we need to c- decide that collectively? That is to say... I, I don't need to sit in my office or cube or whatever to be on Zoom. But if we all decide on Tuesdays, that's yep. the day we're coming in. Or if we all decide every three weeks we're going to have an on-site or an off-site or, you know, whatever the cadence is. But unless sort of some collective of some group decides we're all going to be there, if one or two of us are there and the rest of us are on Zoom, it sort of seems like a weird way to do it. That's exactly what's happening. That's what's happening in real time. Smart groups and smart leaders are self-organizing around this and doing things like, hey, let's form a team charter, right? They're building a team charter that says, here's the tempo that we're going to get together. We need to be intentional because we really don't need to be together for just mere productivity, right? We can sort of do our jobs on our own. But when it comes to the three creative meetings we want to have, we want to make sure that we spotlight that, circle that, and make everybody and make sure everybody is physically present as much as they possibly can be for that. Other places are taking a point of view of toggling, which is you do a, some in-person early on in a project or team relationship, and then you go work remotely for a while, and then you come back and you're in-person. And some kind of smart groups are actually going so far as to fund those and make them kind of fun together retreat like time where you're not really expected to do any work you're actually expected to deepen the relationship and get to know each other and this is this is just a tribute to how human beings are built like we're not wired to have meaningful relationships virtually you know until somebody invents a, a really really good hologram um, these little tiny zoom squares these tiles are not going to create the kind of closeness of which great culture is built and so being intentional about that time together and saying, yeah, I, we don't want to have this string of like three and four people in the office at the time. Let's circle that one hour and let's make that hour as kick-ass as we can make it. And then let's go home and live our lives. So it's, it's like any other skill. Like as you get better at it, you get more awareness and more intentionality. And it's going to be kind of awkward and clumsy, I think, in these, in these first days as we kind of learn this new language of of planning and stumbling and reflecting together on what's going to work and what's not going to work. And I think that's kind of the cool part of it in some ways, uh, because those moments of kind of shared vulnerability where you say, you know what, that's really not going to work for me. Um, where I'm going to work best is is in this situation. Let's navigate that together. 
um, that's what really brings people together, you know, not just sort of this default. Everyone shows up from nine to five and, and goes home when they're done with their work. Um, or in, in Silicon Valley's case, nine to nine or maybe nine to midnight. Um, that sort of kind of default setting is being replaced by this new kind of intentionality, flexibility, and it demands elite communication skills. It demands elite reflection skills. I mean, to me, that's going to be the thing that's going to set groups apart. Uh, are you great at pausing? Are individuals great at pausing? It's the world is so great at giving us stuff to do, right? Just filling our lives with lists and action items and workflows. And it's less good at giving us time to pause. And so it's really on us. And, and really, when you see this with smart leaders and smart groups, they, pausing is like an athletic skill. They're elite pausers where they say, wait a minute, we could just kind of run down this like we always would have, but let's stop. Is there a better way to do this? Who else do we need to talk to? How can we make this work for everyone? And use that pause to zoom out, see where you're at on a larger landscape and find true north and navigate toward it. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. Around here, we, we have a, one of our favorite phrases is thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. Yeah. And in the, the operationalness, if I could say that, of business, you know, you think about the average Monday exec team meeting at your average company. It's very tactical. And, and for the most part, it probably should be. Where are we on sales? What's marketing doing? How are we on hiring? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Where are we on the financials, the forecast, et cetera. Um, but in my work, I still do a little bit of consulting and advising, not much, but a little. Uh, but, but everything I do is in the domain of thinking. And it's interesting how challenging it can be, Dan, to stop a group of executives that are sort of radically addicted to execution mode, which in a lot of ways is a powerful thing, and say, okay, folks, stop. Do that pausing that you're talking about. Zoom back out and let's give this and let's think together as opposed to have a stupid conversation where I have an idea that I'm trying to bang your head over with and vice versa. And we don't listen to each other, but where we actually get the collective uh, sort of IQs rowing together. And so uh, that idea of pausing, how do we do that in what is now becoming a more and more uh, native digital world? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it is, it, to me, it's, it's the, it's the skill. Well, I think there's, there is a, there is sort of a skill set there. The first bit of it is to realize the value of it, realize the value of it in your own life, um, and realize that the value of it in your group's life, um, and celebrate the value of that. You know, there's a moment, um, when great things happen. It's funny. There was just a, just a, a New York Times, they have a, a column called The Corner Office. They're interviewing the CEO of Brooks Running. And he talked about early on in the pandemic, they were about to kind of contract their supply chains, make everything really, make all these tactical decisions to sort of shut down. And then he actually, he talked about it. He says, then we just took a second and we thought about it for a minute. And we realized, wait a minute, um, this will be, actually, this is a great opportunity. The pandemic people are going to run. They, they, they flipped that decision on its head. And as a result, the company grew 22% in the last two years, each year. So those most great decisions in your life, think about your own life. Think about uh, the life of your group, personal and professional. Most great decisions were not made during a flow of action. They were made in a pause. So celebrating that value. 
And then the other skill set is to realize the value of kind of corny exercises. Most, a lot of reflection stuff is based on asking big, stupid questions. And I'll give you an example of one. One of the most powerful exercises that I've seen that any team can do is called the best barrier exercise. And that's where you, you stop and you get your team together and you say, what do we look like at our best? Like if a, if a documentary film crew came to film us at our absolute best, what behaviors would they see? What would they capture on film? And you spend five minutes describing that, right? Like, oh, everybody's talking. There's tons of ideas. We're sharing equally. Nobody cares who's getting the credit. But you describe what that looks like, whatever that looks like for you. Uh, part two, which lasts the next 10 minutes, you say, what barriers stop that from happening every day? Like, why don't we do that 100% of the time? We're capable of it. What is stopping us? Is it, is it distraction? Is it time? Is it, is it uh, the structure of our communication? What is it? Name that barrier. And, and you do those two things, and it takes about 20 minutes to do those two things, right? But in that stupid, kind of corny, kind of obvious little exercise, what you've got, what you're creating actually, is a shared mental model for the landscape you're trying to build. You're trying to be good together, and you're trying to show what that looks like, and then you're, you're saying, this is the mountain range that is stopping us from getting there. And you're creating a shared awareness around what that looks like. And that is not, that kind of pause is actually incredibly productive because you've generated new mental models for what, what you're doing together. And you'll see that impact of that corny little exercise on like everything you do for months going forward. And so this idea that a pause is somehow a stop is not right. A pause is actually incredibly productive. Uh, you know, pausing is productivity. So getting good at pausing. And in, you know, a lot of the plays in the playbook, in the book, it's like almost all of them involve like, okay, take a second. Let's reflect. You know, all learning, all learning you've ever done is a loop. It's a loop of experience. And then the bottom of the loop is reflection. You experience, you have a reflection. You experience, you have a reflection. And that reflection, you're building circuitry, right? You're building things. In the modern world, short changes us on reflection. Like we wake up in the morning, we reach for our phones, and we are in the swim of experience all the time. We're just experience, 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 experience. And carving out the pause is the moment where you can actually take that experience sum it up, construct it into something useful and applicable, and then and, and turn that into, into an improvement, turn that into uh, increased awareness, and turn that into communication, turn that into something real, as opposed to just, you know, the workflow that you live in. So that's that, that, that sort of sort of corny, like big picture, big dumb question um, is, is often at the heart of of that, those sorts of improvements. And you're always asking like, what's really going on here? Where am I going? What is this for? You know, when you get skilled at asking those sort of questions, you get skilled at the skill set that helps you build the culture of your group and also your own skill set. Yes, very much. Thank you for that. There's an interesting sort of dichotomy here, which is um, execution and results are praised for obvious reasons. And, and they should be. And executive teams have to do that. Leadership teams have to do that. And we're so over-rotated on it, though, that we don't have time to do what you're describing on an individual basis. And then, to your point, it, almost nobody thinks about doing it on kind of a group basis. 
So let me bounce something off you and see if you're seeing this kind of a trend. Uh, I have a good buddy, legendary entrepreneur. His name's Doug Campbelljohn, and he's the founder of a company that's in stealth mode right now called Airspeed. And um, as a startup, you know, they have a small team. It's certainly under 100. I forget exactly how many. And um, they don't have an office. They never rented one. They're not doing an office, at least for the foreseeable future. So the whole business is remote. And then what Doug and his team does, I think it might be every six weeks. I might be off a little, but it'd be plus or minus that. They get together somewhere great. They go to, you know, some uh, uh, cowboy ranch in Montana or, you know, whatever the fuck they do. They go somewhere. And I don't know how many days they go there, but they go for a handful of days. And the experience, and I might be, again, a little bit off on the specifics, but roughly is designed to be plus or minus half work and half have fun half have wonderful meals together, do some things together. And they so the interstitial thinking work uh, with sort of this play and, you know, what you describe as corny exercises. And so um, is this a trend that we can expect to see more of? I think so. And I think the way to think about this trend is as a series, a family of experiments. You know, there are, he's doing that one. I think that's brilliant and a great experiment to do. Nobody knows quite what's going to work. And there's not going to be some magical like recipe of best practices, right? There's, there's, this is a realm where, uh, best practices have very limited value. Like there's, there's, this is in the realm of complex. Dan, could you just say that sentence one more time? Sure. We're living in a realm where best practices have limited value. When you're talking about building culture, here's kind of a, this is kind of a woo-woo point I've been thinking about a lot lately. You know, every problem in the world is either complicated or complex, right? Complicated problems have got cause and effect solution. It's linear A to B to C to D. It's like building the engine of a Ferrari, right? It's really complicated, but it's possible to do if you follow these instructions and do it precisely. But complex problems are different because they shift whenever you do anything to them. So, you know, an example of a complex problem is how do you raise your kid, right? Raising a child is complex because everything you do changes the system and changes you and changes the child. So, so building culture is not something where you can just sort of look at a cookbook and, and follow the instructions, right? It's going to be complex. And so this idea of Doug Campbelljohn doing, I'm going to try this experiment and I'm going to go to the Montana dude ranch and the beach in Belize, and we're going to do some work. And so I would say that is a, that's a brilliant direction to go. And I'll be keenly interested in looking at that and all of the other experiments because experimenting is how you navigate complexity. Like there's not one answer that is going to be the best practices for how to build culture tomorrow in your group. But there is a set of experiments that if you do them, you will learn from them and you will be able to kind of move forward in the direction you want to go. You'll realize, well, you know, we really shouldn't do um, ski trips because only a third of our people can ski and, and three of them broke legs when we went skiing. Or, you know, everybody really seems to work really well when we do it a, a, a really short commute from home. Or it really works if we do it one time a year. We don't need to do it four times a year. You'll learn from each time and each time will make you smarter, which sort of shines the light on this, this deeper leadership skill set that this age is, is teaching us about, which is elite communication skills, elite learning and elite reflection. And I would say elite experimentation mindset. Mm, wow. So much there. 
elite communication skills. Um, maybe let's grab that one for a sec. I'm always amazed um, as somebody who gets invited to, you know, a reasonable amount of meetings. I try to keep it to a minimum. But when you're in a meeting, you're in an hour-long meeting, and and you've got anywhere from four or five people to maybe six, eight, 10, 12 people, there's always some people in the meeting who say virtually nothing. Mm-hmm. And I understand introverts and extroverts and, you know, I get all that stuff. But over time, can you just sit in all these meetings and never really say anything? Like, I, I look at them and go, well, what the fuck are you doing here? You can't do that in a good culture, and a good culture won't allow that to happen. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting science on this. I'd point people towards Sandy Pentlet at, at uh at MIT, uh, who's done a ton of work on what good groups do. And it always ends up being the same small quality. There's high degrees of mixing. There's high degrees of voice. We talk about psychological safety a lot. You know, that's, you know, in, in all the research. I'd point you toward Amy Edmondson's research at Google's Project Aristotle. Psychological safety being the greatest single indicator of team performance. But people... Miss what is, hold on a second. What does psychological safety mean? Psychological safety is, is people think it means that everyone feels safe and comfortable. There's a high degree of belonging. The deeper meaning is that everyone feels comfortable taking a risk. Everyone feels comfortable speaking out. Everyone has voice. Really, safety is for voice. And that's the big kind of misunderstanding sometimes around this idea. But psychological safety is the single greatest predictor of group performance, group success, because it allows the entire group brain to function. When you don't have psychological safety, people pursue status. When you don't have psychological safety, people are afraid to take risks. When you don't have psychological safety, you don't have joy or fun, which limits the amount of time people want to be there. You just have transactional and compliant cultures. With psychological safety, you have the assurance that when you say something, it will be taken seriously. There's a sense that we share a future. There's a sense that people actually care. And, you know, there's all sorts of examples I have in, in my books about how you build that stuff. But one of the most powerful ones to me was a, a ship in the Navy. It was run by a, a commander named Mike Abershoff. It was the Benfold. And it had it was the least successful ship in the Navy, the worst performing gunship in the Navy. And he took over, and the first thing he did was have a series of interviews with every crew member. And he asked them, if you could change one thing about life on the Benfold, what would you change? And people gave him his answers. And whenever he heard an answer that could be immediately implemented, Abershoft grabbed the loud hailer, the loudspeaker, and he made an announcement that that change was happening right now. Um, you know, lunch now will start at 12.15 instead of 12. Boom. So every one of those crew members had this incredible experience of voice. That's what psychological safety is. Um, the sort of the, the hook at the end is that the Benfold became the best performing gunship in the Navy within two years. Why? Because they went from a place of status, risk averse, no voice, fear, to a place of psychological safety. And so that that voice, those people that you referred to at the beginning of this, sitting quietly in a meeting, what happens in good cultures is someone speaks up and say, hey, I haven't heard from Dan all meeting. Dan, I'm really curious to get your take on this. And they'll say, hey, I really need your help on this. I really, to actually express vulnerability and fallibility is what creates that, helps that voice come out. As Dave Cooper, who's the Navy SEAL that trained the troops that got bin Laden, 
he says he talks about fallibility and vulnerability quite a lot. And his saying is the four most important words a leader can say are, I screwed that up. Because that gives permission for everybody in the room, especially those people sitting quietly on Zoom, to say, hey, I can screw up too. Uh, actually, if we're going to be good at something, we're going to screw up a lot. You know, that's part of what improvement is built of. So that idea uh, that in a strong culture, you've, you've continually got this voice, 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 safety, safety, safety um, happening all the time. Interesting. Uh, another buddy of mine who's a legendary CEO, his name is Andy Byrne. He's the founder CEO of a company called Clary. He is a master at the, hey, Dan, we haven't heard from you in a little while. What's going on in that big brain of yours? And, and so that's very uh, a powerful insight. Let me juxtapose that a little bit. So, you know, having grown up in Silicon Valley for the last 25 years or so, when I first got to Silicon Valley, uh, most cultures were not this sort of let's all be vulnerable and let's uh, have psychological safety. They were sort of the opposite of that. And I was in a meeting recently where I sort of reflected on this. Um, this guy had showed up in, the, in the, the discussion and he was sort of two or three meetings behind. And so he was having to come up to speed pretty quickly However, uh, he asked a series of questions in his first meeting with the broader group that demonstrated, A, he hadn't done any of his fucking homework, and B, he was sort of not up on the group's thinking as a result of that, and the way he asked those questions exposed, you know, in my opinion, tremendous negativity on this guy because it showed that he wasn't, he just showed up and was winging it. Now. In the past, in many cultures, I think here in Silicon Valley, certainly some that I was a part of, he would have been eviscerated in that meeting, dressed, mm -hmm. dressed down, and he never would have forgot it. And the argument at the time is sort of almost with a sort of a, a slightly military mindset that we are a high performance culture. We are a results culture. We are a culture that says that you got to be able, you, you got to be on your A game at all time. And if you show up at a senior meeting with a bunch of executives and you make a fool out of yourself in an obvious way for not having done your homework, you're going to get crushed. And so uh, why don't we, wh why aren't we doing that anymore? Why is, it may be a dumb question, but why is that a bad idea? No, I like that. It's not, it's actually not. You have to add what is changing. I would say good cultures still do that. There's this sort of misunderstanding about great cultures and, and it's sort of a pernicious uh, fallacy. And it's that great cultures are these happy, happy places where um, every, every good idea, every idea is a good one and there's never any disagreement. And, you know, Pixar just goes in a room and dreams up new movies and, and it's very smooth and very enjoyable. Um, that's not true, actually. Good cultures are places where they really do confront hard truths and argue about the problem and hold people accountable. The difference with our culture is that the account with great culture is that 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 holding accountable is done with with some care uh it's not it's hot it's it's warm candor it's not brutal honesty brutal honesty creates cultures of brutality if if that person in the meeting you just described went in and somebody went you are winging it you are full of shit you have disgraced yourself and our company you wasted our time thanks a lot that is a culture of brutality that's brutal honesty right that works for like a little while, but ultimately it dissolves the culture. Uh, what if instead somebody said, hey, I'm 
I ask a question. It seemed like you weren't prepared at all for that meeting. You know, is there something you want to tell us? What's going on? Um, make it really clear that high candor, like you, you blew at that meeting. You, you were, you didn't read a thing, did you? Um, high candor, but in a context of connection, in a context of of a long term relationship. Dan, do good management principles apply here, which is, you know, praise in front of a group and whack them in private. In other words, the scenario I describe would be whack them in public in front of a group. The scenario I think you're describing is, uh, first of all, I'm not going to whack you. I'm going to give you some real feedback here. I'm going to be very clear about it. I'm going to be very firm about it, but I'm not going to be attacking about it. Um, And I'm going to do it one-on-one as opposed to uh, eviscerate you in front of the group. That's right. That's right. And if the group is tuned in, they're going to see, they're going to know what happened anyway. And, and I saw a beautiful example of that. I, I was, you know, for the book, I was visiting a, a restaurant and you, you've probably heard of Gramercy Tavern um, in New York. It's of course, of I've been there, world. although it's been a while. Well, I was there on a day when Whitney had been training for six months for her first time. She'd been working for six months for this moment. It was her first time at the front of the house being a, a full server. And right before the doors opened, the waiter, the head manager whispered something in her ear. And I wondered, what did he say? You know, did he say like, you know, you can do it. I believe in you. You've worked so hard for this moment. Nope. (laughs) What he said was, if you don't ask me for help 10 times today, if you don't ask for help 10 times today, it's going to be bad. So pretty high candor, pretty accountable, right? But think about the message of connection. Like he didn't say you're going to get your ass kicked. I mean, that would have been true, right? That would have been honest. You're going to get your ass kicked today. That's true. But actually saying like, ask for help. I, I, you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. It's your first day. I made mistakes on my first day. Keep your head up. We're here to help you. Don't put your head down. And that's yes. the message you sent, which was a ultimately warm candor. And so that's, that's really what has shifted. I think these, these good cultures that used to be, you know, engineers just fighting it out tooth and nail. Um, that can function for a while, right? You can get a good result with that. You also get some cultures that have some very unattractive parts of them. Cultures that are brutally honest, cultures that are brutal, um, are not particularly fun to be a part of. And people tend to leave them and tend to have dysfunction. Um, but cultures of warm candor are like the best cultures that you can have because they're ultimately about staying connected and learning and realizing everybody screws up. Like, that even that situation that that you described with that guy, that guy screwed up big time, but that's not who he is. That's his behavior. And behavior is something that you can work on. Yes. Thank you for that. Now, I also want to ask you about uh, sort of an idea uh, around radical trust. So I have two writing partners, Nicholas Cole and Eddie Yoon, and we write this thing called Category Pirates. And in the creation, and we had all written uh, best-selling books individually, and we decided to come together for a bunch of reasons. In the creation of Category Pirates, we created an LLC. And um, we did a couple things in the LLC that sort of freaked the lawyers out. But we think they're critical design points in the relationship. And they are things like, number one, each of the three pirates can take the IP, the intellectual capital of Category Pirates, and do anything he wants with it outside of category pirates at any time. Cool. Yeah. The second one is our decision-making framework goes like this. Any of the three pirates can make any decision he wants at any time on his own. 
and the the arbiter of whether or not he should include one or two of the others is his judgment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these things seem foreign to a lot of people. I don't know if you could do them in a company of uh, 150,000, mm-hmm. but where does this sort of idea of kind of radical trust play into the ideas of kind of vulnerability um, and openness that you're talking about, Dan? Yeah, no. Well, first of all, just an aside, I was a little disappointed that in talking about pirates, you didn't say arbiter. That would have been, uh, <laughs> but the, um, no, it, it, it completely, it completely tracks. It completely tracks because we typically, you know, we have this misunderstanding about trust and vulnerability. We typically think that we have to build up trust before we can be vulnerable, right? We have it exactly backwards. Moments of shared vulnerability are what create trust. And it's called a vulnerability loop. And you see it over and over again in strong cultures. Bill Walsh, best football coach ever. He lost a lot of coaches because, of course, other teams wanted to take um, those smart assistant coaches from his San Francisco 49ers team. Whenever a coach left Bill Walsh, he would hand them the playbook. Other coaches didn't do this. He did it. He did it because he knew that that playbook was worthless outside of a context of the culture in which it was developed and happening, and it was evolving every year. But he said, here's your toolkit for your next job, right? You see that kind of openness all the time in good cultures. You see that kind of support where they, you support the people, you create real vulnerability, and as a result of that vulnerability loop, you're building trust. I mean, that structure that you've got there is a trust building. And you say, it's a ra- it's it's radical trust, but it's actually not so radical when you look at the science of what's creating it. You're creating mutual vulnerability, and that's that's the core of all trust. Like, think of the people in the world that you trust the most. It's not people you've been least vulnerable with. It's people you've been most vulnerable with. And so good cultures operationalize these vulnerability loops. They have meetings that are designed to create those moments. The Navy SEALs are the best at it, right? They have a little meeting after every mission, after every training run that's called an AAR. And it's a very hard meeting to have. You circle up right afterwards before you sleep, before you eat, and you say, all right, what went right? What went wrong? And what are we going to do differently next time? And it's really hard. You have to really be self-critical and you have to be very critical of your teammates. You have to say like, I think you screwed up there, Chris. I think you really screwed that up. And I think I screwed this up. And But that meeting, that mutual vulnerability, that vulnerability loop, that habit creates the, 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 the trust, the connection, the chemistry, all that sort of group magic that we talk about is not really magic. It's, it's a result of these behaviors. Um, yes. And, and so I, I would say that your, your structure is, is not just, you know, it's not just the exception. It's actually the rule on, on how good cultures operate. Hmm. Fascinating. The other thing I wanted to touch on with you, if I could, is I hear a lot of people talking about digital transformation of work and work is being transformed by digital technology and this transformation, transformation. And if you take a big step back, thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. You can only transform something that's in the present and, and sort of bring it into the future. You're starting with a thing that you then transform. And one of the things I wonder about that mental framework is, is what's really going on here, actually uh, new workplace creation. That is to say, if we start with a blank sheet of paper and we say, what's possible, 
given the technology, given the culture, given the way we like to work together and all the other critical inputs that go to building a legendary culture and company, how do we create that that culture and that company in a modern context, as opposed to what I hear a lot in HR circles and IT circles and some management circles, which is how do we digitally transform the workplace? Um, because that feels a lot more incremental to me than how do we create the new workplace? But I'm curious yeah. as to your reaction, Dan. Well, I, I, my reaction is I think you're right. I, I think this idea, digital transformation sounds good, but it kind of centers digital instead of centering people or workplace. And, you know, people are not going to suddenly, despite Mark Zuckerberg's dreams, I think, um, you know, consent to live fully in a, in a digital space. Um, this idea, though, of saying, like, what's the ecosystem of people and work and value and well-being and balance and life and community um, going to look like. I think uh, the way that you're enlarging the question and moving it toward something that is more of a question, I think, like, what is that going to look like? That To me, that makes me think of, all right, what experiments are we doing in this area? How can each group build a set of experiments? And like any experiment, that's two-way, right? You make a probe and then you see what the result is and you learn from that. Um, that process to me is much more energizing, I think, and inspiring than this idea that there's going to be some, you know, digital transformation that will just sweep over us all and leave us somehow different. Hmm. Thank you for that. Now, uh, Dan, I know you're a busy man. You've got a lot of cultures to go out and build. Um, <laughs> is there anything else that you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Yeah, no, it's funny. There's, uh, I, I guess the, the, the journey of writing this book was, was an interesting one for me. I, I set out, th it's like anything else, like that complexity thing we talked about earlier. It's like, I start, set out thinking this was going to be kind of a simple project. I'm just writing this sort of recipe book of, of capturing the best of what great cultures do, this series of actions. And as the world changed and as I spent more time in it, I realized it wasn't so much a, a, a recipe book or a cookbook. It really was a conversation. So I ended up writing a lot of, there's a lot of space in the book for people to reflect, to ask those big, dumb questions of themselves and of those around them. Um, and so it ended up being much more of a conversation, kind of like this one. So I guess, you know, the more I go into this culture space, the more humble I get about how, how immense it is, how interesting it is, how many different ways there are to succeed within it. Um, and I think you're kind of operating in the same space. So I just wanted to kind of this conversation and the conversation that I sort of built in the book sort of reminded me of each other. So just wanted to point that out and, and say thanks for this conversation. Well, thank you, Dan. Uh, I really do appreciate your new book. I think it's, um, you know, obviously you're a culture guru. Um, you've been writing about this stuff for a long time. And um, this new book comes out at a great time. And I really appreciate how you're giving us a framework to do that experimenting and, and just even letting people know that we are at a time of experimentation. And it seems like you're a real advocate of that. And that makes sense to me because I think we're more in a time of uh, creation than transformation. That's a great, that's a great line. That's so true. Well, thank you, Dan. You're welcome back anytime. I really appreciate your work. Uh, stay legendary, my friend. Hey, you too. Thanks a lot. Good luck on the pirate ship. <laughs> Thanks. All right. All the best. Arr. Well, there he is, the legendary Daniel Coyle. 
His new book is out. It's called The Culture Playbook, 60 Highly Effective Actions to Help Your Group Succeed. And I would strongly encourage you to pick up a copy today. He is the man, as you just heard. And I also want to say, once again, we deeply appreciate you sharing this podcast with your friends, family, colleagues, and on social media. All right. We would like to thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we are so stoked uh, that you invest part of your life with us. Remember to join me for the first ever Cloud Wars Live Expo, June 28th through 30th, 2022, in beautiful San Francisco at the one and only Moscone Center. Visit cloudwarsexpo.com. That's cloudwarsexpo.com. All the cloud leaders and all the cool startups you want to meet. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net. Our good friends at interviewvalet.com are how you get your leading thoughts on leading podcasts. Check out interviewvalet.com. My friends at One Life Fully Live are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one lifefullylived.org today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. We must warn you, the creators of this podcast may have been consuming cocktails, and uh, this podcast contains elements known to the state of California to create radically different thinking. <laughs> Try and get that out of your mouth, Lockhead. We're produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his amazing podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do the uh, technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by the handsome and talented GM Simon. The brothers Bobis, RJ, and EX do our web development, and our graphic and web design is done by Cedric Biros. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants our three balance sheets to the wind. We record these podcasts on squadcast.fm, your professional podcast studio in the cloud. That's squadcast.fm. KD Lang was right. Listen to Van Halen. Please teach legendary culture. And if you want to make revenue happen, visit my friends at clary.com. That's C-L-A-R-I.com because revenue has never been more important. Clary.com. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Vladdy. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you again for investing part of your life with us. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.